So we are looking at Daniel chapter 4. If you would open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4, and we will pick up with the next part of this series, Good Faith. Now, as you are turning there, let me ask you a question. Have you ever left a job before because you found the workplace to be toxic? I think some of us had. I heard some mm mm-hmms in the room. And uh, it turns out that the most likely culprit for that is the boss. That's right. In a recent survey on uh, Monster.com, a job search site, 900 people were surveyed and 76% of them said that they left their job because the boss was toxic. Now, what do we mean by a toxic boss? We mean a boss that poisons the atmosphere of the workplace with their inappropriate behavior, or if you want to say it like this, they're a jerk. Now, the qualities that lead to this toxic boss syndrome, the respondents said, were such. 26% of them said that the boss was power hungry. They only thought about themselves. 18% of the people said that the boss was a micromanager. 17% of the people said that the boss was incompetent. And 15% said that the boss was absent. They just weren't around. Now, it's true. A boss can make or break the work environment. But I think there's another thing that's true. If you went to one of these toxic bosses and asked them, how do you think you're doing at your job? More often than not, I think the boss would say, I'm doing a pretty good job. And uh, that's certainly the answer we would have gotten from Nebuchadnezzar. So as we pick up Daniel chapter 4, we are going to be looking at an encounter with God and a toxic boss. And this isn't really the first encounter that these two have had together, is it? In Daniel 1, 2, and 3, there has been an intensification between the interaction of God and King Nebuchadnezzar. And it appears like along the way that Nebuchadnezzar is getting it. He's starting to understand that God is in control. But there's one problem. Nebuchadnezzar loves to be the boss. And I think if we're honest with ourselves this morning, we like to be the boss too. So let's pick up the story, and it begins with Nebuchadnezzar declaring that God is in control. The first three verses. It says this, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, what has happened to the man who, in just the previous chapter, built a statue to himself? Well, we'll see in the text that it all begins with a God dream. So we pick up with Daniel chapter 4 through verse 7. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid, and as I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So I had made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. 
Then the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. If you were to ask Nebuchadnezzar at this stage of his life, how are things going, I think he would have said, life is good. His 401k is flush with cash. All of the major goals and priorities that he's established for his life are going well. In fact, he would have put on his Twitter feed, hashtag winning. Nebuchadnezzar is achieving all of the things that many of us in life want to achieve. But here's the thing. He's awoken out of sleep by a disturbing dream. And he just can't shake the implication in his mind that God is speaking to him again. So what does he do? Well, he reaches out to his gods. And he asks his gods to inform him or let him know what is going on. But there's a problem that we see time and again in the book of Daniel. When you call upon the gods to speak, when it counts, the gods are silent. Now consider the absurdity of the situation. If the gods never speak when it counts, why do you keep worshiping them? I mean, here you have these gods that make great Monday morning quarterbacks. After all the events have transpired, you go to the wise men of Babylon and they can tell you why it happened. But again, when it counts, the gods are silent. Now, we wouldn't do anything like that, right? I mean, we wouldn't keep going back to something that's broken and doesn't work for us. Or maybe we would. You know, what I've found in life is just like Nebuchadnezzar keeps going back to these gods looking for solutions, we go back to our hurts, our hang-ups, our habits, the things that provide false security to us like economic success, politics, our jobs. Some of us think that if I just maintain a healthy lifestyle and eat well, then everything will go well for me. But here's the thing. When things go wrong, these gods don't speak. They don't show up. They don't help you when it really matters. So maybe if that's the case, we need to reconsider who or what we give our allegiance to. So Daniel or Nebuchadnezzar decides that he's going to go with a different plan this time, and he calls Daniel in for help. Look at verses 8 and 9 now. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. It's interesting that when Nebuchadnezzar's gods don't deliver, then he goes to the believer who seems to have a close relationship with the God who does speak. Have you ever noticed this? That in life, people see you walking with God and maybe you've had a friend or someone like that who doesn't have much interest in the things of faith at all, and they come up to you at some point for some reason, maybe something spiraling out of control in their life, and they say to you, will you pray for me? Will you pray for me? Why is that? Well, I think the reason that they're asking you to pray for them is that they're seeing 
the difference in your life. The difference in your life is making a difference. I remember I had a situation like this when I was in college. I was in a speech class, and I had developed somewhat of a relationship with the professor of the class. She was a pretty cool professor. The first day I came right out of the gate, she kind of in an impromptu fashion told us that we needed to get up in front of the class and make a two-point speech. And so I told my testimony. I talked about my life before Christ and my life after Christ, and she was stunned. She couldn't believe that I stood up in front of the class and did that. Well, I didn't scare her away after that first class, and we started building a relationship. It was six weeks into the semester when I was leaving the classroom, and she said, hey, Rob, would you mind staying behind for a minute? I need to talk to you. So the classroom cleared out, and I went up to her desk, and she started crying. And she said, I need you to pray for me. My life is spinning out of control. She was pregnant with her boyfriend's child. She was working full time. She was trying to get her doctorate, and there was a big project that was looming over her head, and she didn't feel like she was prepared to accomplish the details of it. So I looked at her, and I said, absolutely, I would love to pray for you. And it was in that moment that I, I learned something really important about my witness. You see, a simple acknowledgement of your faith plus time, which is a consistent example of your faith, creates positive influence. Now, that's not a magic bullet, okay, guys? I, I want us to understand that. I'm not saying that if you have both of those factors that every single person in your life is going to be positively influenced, but God does tend to work that way. A simple acknowledgement of your faith plus time, a consistent example of your witness, creates positive influence. And that's what Dan Daniel's doing here in Babylon, isn't it? He's living for God and Nebuchadnezzar seeing it. Now I want to take a look at the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. I'm going to summarize it to you because later on Daniel will restrate the main elements of the dream. But there are some important images that we need to understand before we can get there. In the first part of the dream he sees a tree that fills the earth. It's strong, it's plentiful, and its impact is worldwide. How do we know that? Well, verse 12 says this, the beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of heaven lived in its branches, and all the flesh was fed. The next image we see from the tree is in verse 13. There's a, a watcher. Now, the symbolism of the watcher in these dreams is that heaven is awake. Heaven is looking on and, and seeing what happens on the earth. And then the watcher makes a declaration. It, it decrees that that giant tree should be reduced to a stump. And then we're going to read verses 16 and 17. Notice in there that the image morphs from the tree to become a man who is reduced to a beast. Listen to the text. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men." 
Now, after Nebuchadnezzar shares this dream with Daniel, he becomes pretty quiet. Daniel's disturbed. And in trying to get the information out of him, Nebuchadnezzar says, look, you can tell me whatever it is. I know that this has kind of disturbed you. And Daniel says in verse 19 this, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Now, I want us to for a second, just pause and consider Daniel. Think about how many years he's worked with Nebuchadnezzar. We don't really know the time duration between Daniel chapter 2 when he interprets that first dream and now Daniel 4 in this dream. But remember, in Daniel 2, Daniel's about 18, between 18 and 20 years old. The commentators looking at the internal evidence in this book think that about 30 years have passed, okay? So Daniel now is maybe around 50 years old. That's a lot of time to be working under this boss. And as you look at that verse 19, it seems like over time, God has grown a genuine love for Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel's heart. Now, how hard would that be? And here you have the king who reduced the city where Daniel was born to rubble. He puts him in chains and he force marches him some 900 miles from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then not only does he do that, but he seeks to indoctrinate Daniel and his friends, assimilate them, and get them to turn away from their God, from their culture, from their language, and become Babylonian. Daniel is living out in this text the countercultural message of Jesus. Love your enemies. Church, if Daniel could love his enemies, do you think that we could love our enemies? I mean, think about it. Think about all that he went through, and he loves this man. Let's pick up with the interpretation. Verse 20. The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade and whose branches the birds of heaven lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you. That's an idiom in Daniel. Seven periods of time to mean seven years. So seven years shall pass till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from that time until you know that heaven rules. So at the heart of this dream that 
Nebuchadnezzar has gone through, God is saying that he's going to put Nebuchadnezzar through a process to show him, confront him with his pride. That's what this is all about. You know, that image of the tree was a a picture in the ancient Near East. There was oftentimes a a picture of a king being a tree. What kind of tree? Well, it was a, a sacred or cosmic tree. And the king was representing an image of a true or a true image of God. It wasn't that the king thought that he was a God. It was just that the king believed that he had so obtained perfection that he was at a parallel level with the gods. So in Daniel 4, the message is clear. Nebuchadnezzar believed that he had reached God-like status, that he was the keeper of the cosmos, that he was the true image of a God. I mean, it was just a gross form of pride. All of that success, all of that military prowess, all of that power had gone right to Nebuchadnezzar's mind. He believed that he truly was not a boss, but the boss. And that's exactly what pride does. Pride takes our minor accomplishments and it inflates them in our mind. You know that pride is the original sin? Uh, When you look at the book of Genesis, the serpent tempts Eve with this thought, you will be like God. That's what pride is. Pride is the de-godding of God. Pride says, I don't need God. I can make it happen on my own. Pride is the disease that makes me the toxic boss of my own little world. That's what pride is. And how does it manifest in our life? Well, all kinds of different ways. I want to just showcase two of those ways with you because I think these are two ways that in our own culture we struggle with pride. The first way that it manifests is we reject authority. I don't need anyone to tell me what to do. I'm all set. I know how to own and operate my own life. And I remember a couple years back reading a, a story about a guy that exemplified this for me. He was a guy that was building his own micro country within the United States of America. So what does he do? He puts a flag up of his own little country and writes his own like manifesto for what his country is all about. He wears an actual uniform and calls himself the dictator or president of his own country. You want to know the boundaries of his country? The boundaries are the boundaries of his property. So when you leave this guy's yard, you're heading back into the United States of America, and then you're going back into his country. Friends, that's pride in a nutshell. Pride is opting out, okay, of a bigger story so that you can be the boss of your own little, 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 little micro story. And you know what pride ends up doing? It becomes like a self-inflicting wound. Authority is good for us in some ways. Uh, What do you get? What kind of benefits do you get when you submit to the good authorities that God's put in our life? Well, you get stability. You get security. You get direction. That's what authority provides for us, whether it's church leadership or government leadership or even in the household. Let's talk about the parent-child relationship for just a minute. Mom and dad provide for the children stability, security, and direction through the household rules that they're creating for the home. 
And any time a child steps outside of the sphere of the parent's authority by just simply saying, I'm going to do things my way, they step outside of all three of those things. And kids that are rebellious tend to say they feel less secure, less stable, and they don't know where they're heading. You know, parents, teaching our children to obey, teaching them that you don't say no to me, is really good for them. Because if a child cannot humble themselves by obeying the mom and dad that they can see, they're going to grow up and not be able, be able to obey the God that they cannot see. And the same thing's true with any other form of authority. If I can't obey the authority that I can see, I'm not going to be able to obey the authority of God which I can't see. Well, let's take another form of pride. The other form of pride is taking credit for things that I don't deserve credit for. You know, in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is creating an indictment, if you will, against human depravity, against us turning away from God. And one of the key instances of that, he says, is that we do not want to honor God or give God thanks. Basically, we're taking credit for the things that only God deserves. Now, what might that look like in our world? Well, let me give you an example. I earned that promotion. I was smarter than everyone else. I was more competent. I have that it factor. Really? And who do you think gave you all of those things, if that is true of you? I, I mean, in your mother's womb, did you determine how your DNA was going to be woven together? And, and just think about all the steps that took for your life to be where you are today. What if you weren't born with the faculties to be able to do the things that you can do today? Or what if you were born in a country that didn't give you access to education? Or what if you lived through a time and period in history where, say, there was like a Black Friday or a world war or a global pandemic which would have prevented you from achieving the things that you achieve? Now, here's the thing. True, you probably are smart and you probably are pretty capable at the things you do. But the bigger question is, who deserves the credit for that? And the Bible is clear. Everything that I have, everything that I will become, every good gift and perfect gift is from above. And it comes to us from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Well, Daniel calls Nebuchadnezzar out for his pride, and he gives him a strong recommendation. Verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. You see, the thing that Nebuchadnezzar didn't realize about his pride is that his pride was causing human problems. Proud kings create unjust societies. Proud husbands, proud wives create toxic marriages. Proud parents hurt their children. Proud church members hurt their other church family members. You see, proud people think about one thing and only one thing themselves. That's right, themselves. 
And if I can only see myself, then my ears are closed to the cries of the poor, my eyes shut to the destitution of the orphan, my heart is closed off to the sufferer. But Micah 6 8 says this this is what God's looking for, right? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? But here's the thing. Even while our little toxic boss syndrome causes us to walk around and create human problems all over the place, God is still patient. He waits on us. He gives us time to change. And that, that's what Daniel's offering to Nebuchadnezzar here. In fact, from the time that Daniel interprets the God gives Nebuchadnezzar 12 months to change. 12 months. Look at verse 29. <coughs> at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the ro roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Now, when I read that, I say, wow, this guy has a major ego. I mean, look at what he just said about himself. But if I'm going to be honest with myself, I've got to give Nebuchadnezzar a little credit. I can envision myself, if I did all the things he did, maybe standing on that rooftop and thinking I did something pretty cool. Okay, when Nebuchadnezzar's standing up at that rooftop and he's looking out over Babylon, you have to understand that he's looking at the peak of Babylonian prosperity. They have created more infrastructure, bigger building programs that have, than have ever existed in all of their history. He looks out and he sees the hanging gardens which he had built for his wife because she missed the mountains of Media. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, that's fine, I'm a mountain maker. And he creates this incredible feature that the Greeks looked at and considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He also saw the impregnable defense that he created around Babylon, two-wall system, one of the walls so thick that a four-horse chariot could actually make an about-turn on the wall, and it was colossal. There was the Ishtar Gate, which led into their religious district, 40 feet tall. And one of the temples that he had created, it was called a ziggurat, Etamenanka. Guess how tall that building was? 288 feet. He looked out at the Euphrates River and he saw the bridge that he'd built spanning across the river. I've got to tell you, friends, I know people who think they're hot stuff who've done far less than that. But here's the thing. The God who created the universe ex nihilo. So everything you see, all the matter, you know, the chair you're sitting on, the building that we're in, all of this matter that we've crafted with, with our skills and technology came because he said a word and it came into existence. That God who looks at our buildings and our plans and he sees them as children's sandcastles just waiting for the tide to come up and sweep them, that God, when he's had enough, will say enough. Now look at the text. Nebuchadnezzar says these things, verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. 
The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws." Now, the condition that Nebuchadnezzar is suffering with here in medical science is called lycanthropy. Lycanthropy was originally coined when they observed people who thought they were wolf-like, but now in the medical field, it refers to any condition where someone suffers from a condition where they think they are an animal. Now, think about what God has done to this man here you have Nebuchadnezzar who thinks he is on equal footing with the gods, who thinks he's superior to everyone else in the world, and God responds to that with a process of making him become less than human, right? So here you have a guy that has everything and he's lost all dignity. He feeds on the grass, grass instead of the Babylonian banquet. He prefers the open air instead of the buildings that he'd created with the bricks with his name stamped on every brick. God has taken him through a process. But again, God's patient. He watches us play the boss like my children play mommy and daddy downstairs. We run around convinced we're doing significant things, things no one else has ever done, things that prove that we've beaten the system. But when God says enough, he takes us through the process of humiliation. Now, what, what, why does God take us through the process of humiliation? Well, it's not because God's vindictive. It's not because God wants to get back at us. No, God takes us through this process because humiliation is the only cure for pride. We're, we're never going to get it. We're never going to look up and, and get outside of the sandbox that we're creating unless God takes us through the process of humiliation. I remember this in my own life when I was 18 years old. I thought I was hot stuff. I mean, I walked around. I knew that I was in charge of my life. I managed me better than anyone else. I was better at making me happy than anyone else. I didn't need God. I didn't need my parents. I didn't need anyone telling me how to guide and navigate my own life. I had some big plans going on. And God systematically and graciously turned each one of those plans to dust. He humiliated me. And you know what I learned? At 18 years old, thank God that I learned it then. I'm not the boss. I'm not in charge. Every plan that I try to put together turns to ruin. Every time I give it over to him, then I find true meaning, true purpose, true identity, true harmony in my world. You see, this is the thing we have to come to understand from Daniel 4. If you want to matter... You have to learn that you can't make that happen. You can't do that for yourself. And Nebuchadnezzar comes to that realization. Look at verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. 
And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all of his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble." And when you look at that, do you think that Nebuchadnezzar has come to a saving faith in God? I know a lot of commentators are back and forth on this. Some say he has, others say he hasn't. But I got to tell you, when I look at those words in that passage, that sounds to me like someone who gets it now. I really believe in this text, after this process of humiliation, that Nebuchadnezzar has finally bowed the knee to God and that he came to a saving understanding of who God is. Here's what he learned. He learned that in order to go high, he must first go low. In order to be first, as Jesus said, he must first be willing to be last. This is what we see in the scriptures, that humility is the real path to exaltation. Now, how do we know this? Well, first thing, Scripture tells us, doesn't it? Proverbs 29, 23. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Or what about Peter's words to the young upstarts in the church that are full of vision and vinegar? And they're fighting with some of the older members of the church. He says this to them, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For what? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And here's the thing. Jesus also showed us that humility is the path to exaltation. In recounting the life of Jesus, Paul writes in Philippians 2, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, and then Paul goes on to talk about the gospel. The king of heaven, Jesus, lowered himself, become, becoming a human being, and then he lived the life that you and I couldn't live, and then he died on the cross, and he shed his blood for us on the cross so that we might find our way back to God, and then he rose again from the dead, and he was exalted, he ascended, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father. Now, friends, let me ask you, is there a more exalted place in all of the universe than the right hand of God the Father? Absolutely not. So why do we engage in pride? Well, I think that we engage in pride because fundamentally the human heart desires to matter. We're fighting for our significance. We're fighting for meaning. But here's the problem with pride. 
It's like swallowing a poison pill. If you're wanting meaning, that's the last way to get it. Pride causes me to be more insignificant. I become the ruler of my own really, 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 really small world. But humility, on the other hand, reorganizes the universe where I, I realize that God's the boss, I, I'm no better than anyone else, and here's the other part of it, I'm no less valuable than anyone else. I step out into that universe, and that universe is incredibly large because the creator of the universe made it. And I don't have to fight for attention or significance. I don't have to go viral for a couple of minutes so people think that I'm somebody. No, when I humbly step into God's world, I get eternal significance, significance that outlives the stars. So let's do something for just a minute. Can I ask you as we're closing down to just shut your eyes and get quiet before God, just to think and consider and while your eyes are shut, I, I want you to think about heaven. What do you think of when you think of heaven? Let me maybe correct a couple of false assumptions. Some of us think that it's going to be this big void where my spirit's just floating around and bouncing off of space or whatever. That's not right. Uh, you're not going to be an angel on a cloud. It's not going to be like one eternal church service. hate to break it to you, but I don't think I would want to be there if that was all it was. No, it's going to be a place of culture and beauty. There will be art, architecture, food that you've never tasted before, great conversations. Heaven is the place where things keep going on that matter, that are significant in this world. Now, while your eyes are closed still, let me ask you another question. Who will be great in heaven? Listen to these words from Andy Crouch. Their names may or may not be recognizable from the history books. Tonight a mother is singing her child's lullaby. A nurse in a clinic without electricity is holding the hand of a man dying of AIDS. A hungry boy is sharing a scrap of food with his sister. They are not kings now. But the gospel turns our assumptions about what is lasting, what is significant, what is elite, upside down. Isaiah 57, 15, God says, I dwell in the high and holy places, and also with those who are contrite and humble in spirit. Well, if you wish to dwell with God, friends, in eternity, you must dwell with God on God's terms. You have to stop playing the boss. You have to stop taking credit for things that only God can take credit for. And the way to start that, the Bible says, is by coming to God through Jesus, putting your faith in Jesus, believing that he died on the cross for your sins and that he rose to new life. You have to stop being the boss. You have to stop thinking to yourself, I'm the one who earns my salvation. You don't earn your salvation. Jesus earned your salvation for you on the cross. You see, the path to true exaltation is through humility. And one of the most humbling things we can come to terms with in the world is I can't save me. Only God can do that. Are you ready for that this morning? 
Are you ready to trust him and believe that Jesus took it all for you? Well, if you are, I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me in your heart to trust Jesus. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the only Savior and the risen Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I want you to come into my life at this moment as best as I know how I turn my life over to you for your care, for your protection, for your control. In your name I pray, amen. Well, friend, whether you're here with us physically or if you're with us online, if you've trusted Jesus this morning, you just started an awesome journey, got to tell you. And it's the beginning of a journey, right? In journeys, uh, they take a long time, and there's a lot involved with them. But you might be asking yourself the question, if I've trusted Jesus, what's my next step? And here it is. It's really simple. Go tell another Christian that you've trusted Jesus. You see, when you tell another Christian, you're also inviting that person to help you along in your faith journey. We all need community. We need someone to say, hey, keep going, keep striving, keep being the person that God's called you to be. So go tell another Christian. God bless you guys.